Well, we have about uh, two weeks left as we continue this summer's covenant worship while we are not dismissing our children. And so uh, we'll jump straight into the word. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can see it in the sermon insert or also look ahead at the projection. We are in week three of a four-week mini-series where we're focusing on evangelism and witnessing. And of course, this is in line with our ministry theme for the year, Calling for Four. Uh, And basically, as we do it, For four weeks, each week we're praying, I'm praying, I hope you're praying, that God places a burden on your heart um, for one person, one name, one face, that you would share the gospel with them, that you would invite them out to church. Uh, I know that it can be uh, sometimes very intimidating, very scary. I hope last week's uh, encouragement from Acts 26 in the testimony was helpful. Um, that the conviction that we saw in Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 was also, would also become our conviction. And then today, uh, that we would uh, understand um, how we are called to pray, live, and to speak as bearers of that good news. And so our text today is Colossians 4, verses 2 to 6. The sermon is entitled, A Winsome Witness. And so would you stand with me as we read and we, we receive God's holy and inspired word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let me pray for us, friends, as we dive into this portion of the scripture. Father, we pray that your spirit would be granted to us so that we have eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to understand and be moved and convicted For only your living word has that power to pierce our hearts. And Lord, I pray that more than just piercing our hearts, that you would uh, do surgery on us, that you would open us up, you would read us, you would understand us, that you would help us to see what's going on in our own hearts, help us to know what your word is saying and how it's moving us and challenging us. And I pray, God, that at the end, when we close this portion that we will have heard very clearly what you are speaking to us through your living word. Lord, bless this time. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There once was an old man who every morning he lived near the beach. He would go out to the shore and he would do his daily walk. Well, early one morning, he was taking a walk, and the night before, there had been a large, a big storm um, that had passed, and he found that this huge, vast beach was littered with starfish that had washed up ashore as far as the eye could see. And off in the distance, as he was taking his stroll, he saw a little boy who was walking along the same shore, walking toward him, but every once in a while would stop, pick something up, and throw it into the ocean. And as they got closer, he realized the boy was throwing starfish back into the water. Well, as soon as they got close enough for him to speak, the older man said, young man, what a noble thing you're doing. But there must be thousands of starfish on this beach. 
and I'm afraid no matter how hard you work, you really won't be able to make much of a difference. The boy thought about it, considered what the man said. Then he bent down and picked up another starfish, threw it in the water, and said, well, it made a difference to that one. You know, it can be overwhelming when we think about all the people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our companies, in our communities, all the people who don't know Jesus. And add to the fact that it's not up to us to change their hearts. It's not up to us to change their minds. Even if we are faithful and we're bold and we're winsome, it is not up to us. And if you deeply reflect on that, it can be incredibly frustrating and discouraging that our labors don't necessarily lead to the kind of fruit we hope for. And so then think about the vast billions of people in the world who are lost, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you really sit on that long enough, it burdens your heart. And I think it's easy to give up and feel defeated, to feel like the task is impossible. But just like the little boy on the shore, you need to realize that even your ministry to one person can change their eternal destiny. Yes, you yourselves, you can reach the far corners of the earth, but for that one individual, you are not just simply making their life a little better. You are not offering them a comfort or a convenience. You are offering them hope for their eternity. So yes, as a church, you've heard it, we make it clear every Sunday, our core value is global missions. The church needs to be engaged in global missions, but we must also practice and commit ourselves to local evangelism. We want to understand from a biblical perspective how to go about this. What is on God's heart? And so today we're looking at Colossians 4, and here is our gospel truth for this afternoon. A believer's life and speech should be winsome, should give winsome witness to Christ. It's very simple. A believer's life and speech should give winsome witness to Jesus Christ. And as we look at this passage and consider this gospel truth, we're going to think of, we're going to look at three things. Pray in a desperate manner, live in a wise manner, and speak in a gracious manner. And so as we look at today's passage, let's first consider this. Pray in a desperate manner. Well, one issue with doing a series where we're looking at different texts every Sunday is that we don't know the context. So the context of Colossians is that Paul is writing this letter as he is in prison. That's why in verse 3 it says, on account of which I am in prison. So Colossians is considered a prison epistle that Paul writes as he's in prison in Rome. Uh, what we find out is that Paul's not alone in prison, that Paul is uh, in prison with another believer. And later in verse 10, he mentions uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. So Paul and a couple of other Christians are in prison. But, but here's what's going on. As he writes a letter to the believers in, Col in Colossae, he gets to the end of his letter. We're in chapter 4, and he begins his uh, sort of landing the plane, his descent, by encouraging, pleading with the believers there to be prayerful. So look at verse 2. It begins this way. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, when Paul talks and encourages the believers to pray, the historical context colors what Paul is saying. 
Paul is not uh, sitting in a bungalow on a beach, sipping mojitos, enjoying the, the sunset and thinking about prayer in the Christian life, going, you know what? You guys should pray. It's really going to be a helpful thing. But rather, Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel. He is working diligently in kingdom warfare for the name of Jesus Christ to advance. And so as he's talking about prayer, he's not talking about, hey, in the mornings, why don't you take five minutes and just kind of reorient your spirit and your heart for the day ahead of you. No, he is talking about prayer as, as kingdom warfare. And as John Piper puts it, I love the way he puts it, that prayer is a walkie-talkie to God in the midst of a war. That prayer should be communicating to the general. And so when Paul says continue steadfastly in prayer, he's saying when you pray, don't give up. Devote yourself to it. Be persistent. Call out to God. And then he says be persistent in prayer. Be diligent. Devote yourself to prayer. Being watchful. Now that word for watchful means something like be alert, be on high alarm. It's the same word that uh, Jesus used in Matthew 26, verse 41, when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his betrayal, and he says, watch, be watchful, be alert, and pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6 when he is talking about the spiritual armor of God, and he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert, watch out, with all perseverance. And so the image here is not simp simple devotional kind of prayer life, praying for your meal, praying for traveling mercies. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about wartime prayer, urgent prayer, desperate prayer, prayer for kingdom advancement. And I love what John Piper writes. He helpfully says, I have often said that one of the reasons we feel so weak in our prayer lives is that we have tried to make a domestic intercom out of a wartime walkie-talkie. Prayer is not designed as an intercom between us and God to serve the domestic comforts of the saints. It's designed as a walkie-talkie for spiritual battlefields. It's the link between active soldiers and their command headquarters with its unlimited firepower and air cover and strategic wisdom. You see, when Paul says devote yourself to this kind of prayer, he's saying don't give up in praying that God would blast open the doors for gospel witness. And so verse 3, Paul says, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. You see, Paul is in prison. Paul, the great apostle, the great evangelist, the great ambassador of Christ, with Aristarchus and probably a few others, are in prison. And so it looks like the enemy is winning. It looks like gospel progress has slowed down or gospel progress is, is stopped. And in these kinds of times, we're called to increase prayer, not decrease in prayer. Have you ever seen uh, a war movie? There's often a, a very typical scene in a, in a war movie where there are the good guys and they're in a small platoon and they're out in the jungle and they stumble across this great enemy regiment. This great enemy force that is two, three, four, five, six times their size. And they begin exchanging gunfire. And that little platoon is trapped in a very disadvantageous uh, position. And the soldier with the radio starts calling back, calling for support, doesn't he? And the drama is always the case that in the midst of all of this chaos and the, all the explosions, as he's radioing back to headquarters, he can't seem to get through. There's only statistics. It always just happens that the radio isn't working. And so you know the scene, the soldier, he's radioing for help, 
bravo, you know, this is Charlie Company. Do you hear me? Come in, come in. And he's persistent with it. What kind of soldier is in the middle of this firefight? And he's radioing for help and there's no response and he, he looks around and there's a terrified group of soldiers that are hunkering in the bunker. They're all praying and they're all afraid and he's calling and, and nobody comes through and he puts it down and says, I guess they're really busy. I'll try a little later. That's not what happens in these movies at all, is it? What, what do they do? They repeatedly try over and over again. Do you hear me? Is anyone there? Do you copy? I repeat, is anyone out there? Do you copy? And in desperation, they are calling to home base for help. That's the kind of prayer Paul is talking about. Pray. Be alert, be watchful, pray desperately that God would open up doors, that he would send a missile to blast through the enemy's gate so we can continue the mission of winning the lost. Now, in the context, Paul's saying, you guys pray for me, but it's not a far stretch by way of implication that we should also be engaged in these kinds of prayers for ourselves. Should we not also desperately pray that God would open doors in our own lives to share the gospel with the people around us? Should not we also be engaged in this prayer? God, open up the doors. Increase the opportunities for me to share Jesus with somebody this day to this person. You know, here's the thing. God in his sovereignty does not make mistakes. He has you where you are with the people in your life, in relationships with certain people, not accidentally, but purposely. So then how are you leveraging those relationships? How are you looking at these relationships that God has placed in your life and making the most of them? Before you look for an opportunity to share, have you prayed that God would open up an opportunity? So many times we, 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 we leave a sermon hearing about evangelism and witnessing. We read a great book or a convicting quote and, and we just kind of go out and we say, well, God, if you just kind of give us an opportunity, then yeah, sure, if you open a door, I'll go through it. But rarely do we pray, God, open a door this day. This is an important prayer we need to start praying on your way to work. God, that person I share a cubicle with, that person that we have every Monday morning meetings with, open a door. Help me see the opportunity. When you're in your car, you're about to enter the building, just take 30 seconds. God, this person, I don't know, do I have a sign on my forehead that says, talk to me, I want to hear your problems? I don't think so, but they think I have that sign. They keep sharing with me. God, is that the door? You see, the thing is, if we're not praying for open doors, if we're not praying and preparing for an open door, when an open door comes, what are we going to do? We're going to shut it. If you're not praying for these opportunities and these open doors to share the gospel with people, then you're not going to expect it. If you're not expecting it, you're not going to be prepared when God actually opens the door. You're going to be hesitant. You're going to be scared. You see, you, you get that. If you're not on, if you're not alert, if you're not watchful, when the moment comes, you won't seize it. 
question is, are you praying and preparing for God to surprise you by opening a door? You never know how it's going to happen, but if you pray faithfully and you're alert, then when it does happen, you'll know, God, you're answering my prayer. You know, I heard this story. Greg Laurie is a pastor of a large, large church in California, a bunch of campuses, and, and he tells this great story that uh, one time he and his wife were at the local mall and they were doing some shopping, um, but he needed to go, he needed to use the restroom. So he says, uh, he tells the story that he goes into um, the stall um, and he's doing his business when uh, the, the guy in the stall next to him begins clearing his throat <clears throat> and he says, Hi. And he's feeling really uncomfortable with this whole situation as he's trying to do his business. But he didn't want to be rude, so he responds, Hi. And the guy's very hesitant, and he clears his throat again, and he says, um, Are you supposed to meet me here? And where glory is confused out of his mind. Well, upon further inquisition, he finds out that the guy was waiting for a drug dealer to meet him in the stalls to sell him drugs. Um, and as Greg Laurie is sitting there, literally, <laughs> he realizes, God, are you opening a door for me right now? Not physically, a door is enough. Are you, is this an opportunity in this moment? And he, and he says that, I thought in this moment, could God use a situation like this for me to share the gospel? In the middle of the, of the bathroom while I'm doing my business. And he, he believed God was saying, yes, this is the open door. So, so he says to the man, um, I don't have drugs for you, but I have something better. And the man bid. He said, whoa, what? And Greg Laurie says, a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And then the man responds, well, I already tried that. You know, I went to church and everything. Greg Laurie says, oh, what church did you go to? And he said, I went to some big church called Harvest Christian Fellowship. It didn't work out. That's when Greg Laurie says, I'm the pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship. Do you know who I am? And the guy's absolutely terrible. And then uh, Greg Laurie says, he responded, friend, God must love you so much that he sent his pastor <laughs> to stop you from buying drugs. Meet me outside of the bathroom. And he said he waited for him outside and he knew who he was because the guy just looked totally ashamed as he was coming out. Greg Laurie shared the gospel with him and he committed his life to Jesus Christ. You know, and I just tell that story because an open door can happen anywhere. At any time, if you're praying and you're praying and preparing for it. So are you praying and preparing for it? That God would flood and fill your life with these kinds of conversations and opportunities. You know, this week, what would it look like tomorrow morning to ask before you leave the house or before you leave, step out of your car to ask God that he would open a door and an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody? family member, a coworker, a classmate, a neighbor, somebody that you sit on the train next to, somebody in a grocery store line, anybody that God has placed in your life. So first, in order to be winsome, you must pray desperately for God to open the doors and present an opportunity. Second, live in a wise manner. Live in a wise manner. Paul says then in Colossians, look at verse 4, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Now, walk here isn't talking about like strolling around walking. Walking uh, means just living in a certain way. 
So another translation is act wisely or conduct yourself wisely. So uh, same word Paul wrote in Colossians 1 verse 10. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That just means live that way. In chapter 2 verse 6, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And the point is that the Christian life is to be lived in a way that puts forth winsome witness to outsiders, to unbelievers. So why should a Christian look at the way they're living their lives? It's very simple. It's because it's the first thing that an unbeliever sees about you. If your life is not lived in a manner consistent with the message you're sharing, then you are being the greatest obstacle to the gospel in that moment. The reality is that, you know, the first thing people see about your gospel witness is how you are living. Because you can say all the right things, you can know all the right things, you can be really, really convincing, but if your life is not lived in accord with what you're preaching, then you ruin your own witness. And so Paul wants to be very clear here. Conduct yourselves in a way that gives credible witness to the gospel. Now I'm going to take a sidebar here and just say this. This whole, I've talked about this, I think, a, a year ago or so. This whole um, Fran, St. Francis of Assisi, um, share the gospel and when necessary, you know, use words. And the whole point being there is, oh, you must live in a way that shares the gospel. And I, I agree with that. We must do that, but it must always be accompanied by words. So Paul here says, open the doors for that what? We can share the mystery of Christ. But Paul here is saying, okay, live wisely because outsiders are looking at how you're living your life. And then he says his little phrase. He says, making the best use of time. And another translation is probably more helpful is making the most of every opportunity. And Paul's point is that relationships that you have with unbelievers are opportunities that need to be taken advantage of because the clock is running out. The clock is running out. Do you see how it says the time? Making the best use of, not time, but the time. Meaning that there is a fixed date. We don't know when, but Jesus Christ is coming back and time is running out for this unbeliever. Time won't be renewed and you need to seize it. Now, do you remember uh, game one of the NBA finals this year? The Cleveland Cavaliers are tied with the Golden State Warriors. 4.7 seconds left on the clock. J.R. Smith got the rebound. Oh, what is that? Could you uh, put that away? The slide? Yeah. I didn't mean to put that there. No, I did. I'm just kidding. Um, 4.7 seconds left. They're tied. They get the rebound. J.R. Smith on the Cleveland Cavaliers, and in a moment of confusion, if you remember watching this game, uh, he grabs the ball and he, he starts dribbling away from their team's basket. Now, you don't need to know anything about basketball to, to, to know that dribbling away from your basket is not the point. And of course, as that picture shows, Robert, you can show it, uh, LeBron James is here saying, what are you doing? You're supposed to go that way. And basically what happens is the 4.7 seconds ran out, and then the Cavs lost in overtime, and this is the aftermath. Now we can get rid of that picture, but the, the simple point of that illustration is J.R. Smith did not make the best use of the time the clock ran out. The time ran out, and they lost. And there's no buying back that time again. And Apostle Paul is saying something very similar to you. And he's saying, what, is, I'm, what I'm talking about is so much more important than a, a, a game of basketball. You have limited time within, with the unbelievers in your life because the clock will run out for them. And unless you live wisely, there's never going to be a second chance. 
This life, this is it for them. There's no other chance. They don't have another shot at redemption. And so knowing that the time is running out, knowing that Jesus can come back at any moment, how are you making the best use of time? How are you living your life in a way that bears witness, winsome witness to others? And so consider your relationships. Consider your regular interactions with unbelievers. And then begin thinking, how can I maximally and wisely utilize my life for this witness? And you pray for God to open doors, you also need to pray for the wisdom. How can I leverage my time with them, my relationships with them, the relational capital I have? How can I do it in a way that it runs against the grains of the world so that my life is compelling to them? How can I be generous to others? In a, in a culture of increasing selfishness and stinginess, how can I be generous to somebody else? Not just with money, but with time, with my energy, with my friendship. How can I, how, how can I be wise in, in using hospitality? Opening up my home for a simple dinner with a coworker or, or neighbors or, or parents or your children's friends or the other parents of, of moms and, and dads on the sports teams. How can I, I share my life with them and be public in a culture that's increasingly private? Is there a difficult individual that others are clearly withdrawing from that I should be drawing closer to with an extra measure of grace and patience and humility that will be compelling simply because nobody else is doing it? You see, the possibilities of living in a wise manner before the unbelievers is limitless, is endless, because our lives take place in the arena of unbelievers. So then how are you living in a way that either enhances your gospel witness or diminishes it? And take a, take a real good look at your heart. You see, because the way we live will either distract from that witness or it will enhance it. And you must carefully think about your life and your conduct. Is it accomplishing what Paul is instructing here? Makes me think of the Vietnamese noodle dish, pho. And I know many of, of, of you in the congregation love eating a good bowl of pho, especially on a rainy day like today. Some of you may go right after service. Now there's a huge debate, of course, on the proper way to eat pho. Um, and I've done a good amount of research on this. <laughs> I, um, I read a lot of articles, I watched a lot of videos, and. Um, I'm so concerned about this that I did uh, field research myself. A lot of hands-on experience by, you know, eating many bowls of pho in my life. Now, you know, there's people who say food is food, you do you, there's no proper way to eat it, you know, whatever is good for you. No, that's wrong. <laughs> you see, the point of pho is it's complex and rich broth. It's made of, you know, beef and chicken bones with coriander seeds and garlic and ginger and carrots and onions and star anise and cinnamon sticks and so much more, right? So at its core, a good pho is determined by how good its broth is. But if you're an ignorant eater like me, <laughs> when the bowl is set in front of you, what do you do? You take that sriracha sauce and you just spread it all in the bowl. And when you do that, you're not enhancing the flavor of the broth, but you're covering it up. You see, the sauce is given, it's meant to complement the dish. 
But when you spread it all in, all it does is dominates the flavor, covers it up, all the intricacies, and so all you're left with is a red-colored spicy soup. But the proper way, you put a little bit of that sauce in a little dipping plate, and you dip your meat in it, or you dip it into the noodles, and that enhances the dish while preserving the broth. And your life, then, is like that sriracha sauce. Because your life is either complementing the gospel or it's complicating the gospel. Your life is either enhancing the gospel or complicating the gospel, making it worse. How are you living? Are you living in such a way that your life enhances the gospel message so others are attracted to it? Or are you living in a way where you're distracting from the gospel message so people are repulsed from it? Paul says, keep a close watch on how you're walking, how you're conducting your life, your manner of behavior, the goals you have, your pursuits. Because other people are watching. Third and last, speak in a gracious manner. Paul closes in verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Here's Paul's warning. Pray for open doors to share Christ with people, but when God opens them, don't shut the doors through unwise living or ungracious speech. That's what, that's what he's saying. Pray that God will open the doors and make sure that through unwise living you're not shutting the door. Make sure that through ungracious speaking you're not shutting the door. So Paul says, do two things. So let your speech always be gracious. Right? If wisdom is, is supposed to shape the way we live, then grace is supposed to shape the way that we speak. So he's saying, be gracious. Don't be arrogant. Don't be harsh. Don't be judgmental in the things you say. But be gracious in what you say, how you say it. You know, no one ever went to heaven because they were made to feel stupid. Be gracious. And then Paul secondly says, your speech should be seasoned with salt. Meaning that your language should be persuasive, attractive, flavorful, right? Salt enhances flavor. Salt makes a bland dish good. They say, you know, salt covers a multitude of culinary sins. So your speech, attractive, flavorful. And he says, why? Why should you be gracious? Why should you be seasoned with salt because of this end? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So you know how to answer each person. Now, there's an assumption here that we must not overlook. I don't know if you can see it here, but the situation Paul is describing, he says, you need to be gracious in how you speak, seasoned with salt, so that you answer a person in the right way. Well, if you're answering a person, that means you're answering either a question asked or a statement given to you. So if you're responding, if you're answering, that means actually in order to answer graciously, Christians first and foremost need to listen graciously. But that's so difficult, isn't it? It's so difficult to listen graciously. Have you ever had an argument with somebody? Right? The temptation in an argument is that both people are talking past one another because no one's really listening to one another. Right? If you're like me, that's, that's what I do all the time. While the other person is talking, I'm not listening to what they're saying. What am I doing? I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. I'm already formulating my response. I'm already strategizing my attack or my counter response. Am I the only one? I don't think so. 
And you know you're guilty of this when you talk back and you, and you give your response and the person looks at you and they're like, what are you talking about? That's not what I said at all. You're not listening. And that gets you even more mad. You get upset, I am listening to you. But that's not true. You're hearing them. You hear the words they're speaking, but you're not listening to what they're saying. We do the same thing as Christians when we evangelize and we witness when you enter into a conversation with somebody and you already know everything that you're going to say. You have a, a memorized set of statements about the gospel and it doesn't matter what they're saying or what they're asking. What we memorize is what they're getting, whether they like it or not. This is what we prepared. But this reveals a fundamental flaw in our evangelism because you cannot speak graciously and winsomely unless you learn to listen graciously and winsomely. Because you're answering the person in front of you, not the straw man that's in your head. So listen well if you want to do as Paul says and know how, to, know how you ought to answer the person. You, you see, we should know how to evangelize in a very formal way. What are the basic truths of the gospel? But sometimes when we only know that and we refuse to actually listen to the questions people are asking or, or deal with the struggles they're asking, we're basically like a Christian who carries around an evangelistic toolbox with only one tool, and that's a hammer. And we think that that's the solution to everything. And sometimes, you know what it is? Sometimes, oh, this wooden board is loose and you can pull out your hammer and it works. But sometimes somebody will come to you and say, you know, oh man, I have a, I have a headache. And then you take out the hammer and you say, maybe this will help. Well, no, it won't. It'll just make the person hurt more. You see, when we engage with people and we talk with them, we leverage these relationships. We're sitting at the dinner table because we've invited our neighbors over, our coworkers, our classmates over. We listen. What are their concerns? What are their questions? What are their doubts? What are their fears? What are their commitments? What are their idols? What are their dreams? And you listen to that. And you listen to these things carefully and charitably, and it allows you then to answer that person with grace and season with salt. So in order to answer well, we must listen well. Consider this paradigm shift with me. When you think of evangelism, you tend to think of it as looking for somebody to talk to. But what if evangelism is better considered as looking for somebody to listen to? Now that's just not like a play on words or anything. I, I really think it makes a fundamental difference. What if evangelism is not, okay, I'm called to evangelize. I gave you that illustration where I went to the mall when I was with that mission team and you sit down and you're like, who can I talk to? Who's willing to listen with me, listen to me? That's how we think about it. Who can I talk to who's willing to listen to me? What if in evangelism you looked out at a group of people and you said, who can I listen to? Whose story can I invite to be heard? Because when you're so concerned about your speaking, what you end up doing is you're forcing an entry point into somebody rather than knocking on the different doors and seeing which door they open. And then when you open a certain door, you speak graciously. God, would you open a door for me to hear people's stories? Would you open a door for me to hear people's stresses, to hear people's sufferings, to hear people's sins, and then help me to listen well so that I can speak well the hope of Jesus Christ into their life? 
And let me, get, let me close with this, just a practical example. Have you ever taken, uh, sat on an airplane, you sat down next to somebody, and um, you start wondering, man, should I share the gospel with them? Am I the only one who just kind of has that, and just every time I sit in an airplane, I just wrestle, like, oh, I know what I'm called to do, and oh, man, and sometimes I think, like, man, I wish I had a little kid, so I had an excuse to, like, you know, I'm taking care of my kid, I don't have time for this. But you sit down, and, and I just sit, and I'm thinking, should I share the gospel with them? Have you ever had that? And if you've ever thought that, like, how did it go for you? And a lot of times it's really hard for us to muster the courage and the, and the boldness to do it. Or, or sometimes we're like, man, I'm going to find, I, I'm waiting for the right time. And of course the right time is always when you land and you're going your separate ways. But, you know, that, I, I bring that up because, you know, when we sit and we're thinking, like, should I share the gospel with them? What's going on in our head is something more like, how can I bring Jesus up? <laughs> And that's so artificial, that's so foreign, that's such an unnatural uh, entry point. It's like there's a wall and you're thinking, like, can I just like break through it? But what would it look like if, if, you, if you sat down and, and, and you're feeling convicted to share the gospel and you're thinking, you know, how can I listen to this person's story? How can I like invite them to kind of share their story with me? Let's, and, and let's see what they're willing to share and let's see how God opens the door. Now, I try not to be too self-referential on this kind of stuff, but um, th there was one time I, I was on a plane, and I sat down next to a married couple, and, uh, you yeah, know, they looked like they were in their 60s or so, and, you know, we, we were chatting, and, and, and uh, in a rare moment of wisdom, I thought, you know what, I, I'm just going to ask questions. And the simple questions, and this works on an airplane, is basically two. Where are you going, right, because sometimes it's a connecting flight, and are you going home or are you leaving home? Simple question. And it turned out as I asked those questions and they talked that they were, um, that their grandchild has, was having major surgery in a couple of days and they had just found out and so they immediately booked a flight and they, and they were going and they were full of so much concern and, and all of this. And you know, after having asked those simple questions and hearing what they say, I think God was opening a certain door. But if I hadn't asked that question I didn't know about them, I sat down and I looked at them and I said, if you were to die today, would you end up in heaven? <laughs> Imagine, in the midst of grieving and worrying and fear, how much that would have crushed them, how much that would have turned them off. Instead, in the midst of their sharing, I was able to share the Christian hope in the midst of suffering. I was able to offer to pray for their grandchild's surgery and their recovery. And at the end of the day, did they give their lives to Jesus? No. But I believe I gave a faithful, winsome witness to the gospel. And at the end of the day, that's all that God is calling us to do, to be faithful and winsome in witnessing and sharing the good news. And as we think about this, here's how we must end. This can create a lot of burden in us, but ultimately what we rest in is the confidence that, you know why you can be winsome? Because it's not you who does the winning, it's Christ who does the winning. I have all the pressure taken off. I'm not winning them over, I'm just being win winsome. Jesus will win some. And so we pray. We can pray for open doors in a des desperate manner, why? Because we have the Christ who prayed and for us and he opened the door of heaven and he came down to pursue us as, as, as runaway rebels. We, we live in a wise manner paying attention to how we live because we have a Christ who lived the perfect and obedient life in our place. We can speak in a gracious manner because Jesus Christ is the word of God full of grace and truth 
who's revealing that grace is not an abstract idea, but a person. So ultimately, I'm not torn up inside. You don't need to be torn up inside of the pressure of, oh my goodness, I must save this person. I must win them. No. You be winsome. Jesus Christ will win some. And so friends, look closely at your life. As you reflect on Jesus, then consider again these three questions. One, are you praying for open doors and opportunities to share the gospel in the relationships God has placed you in, that God has placed in your life? Two, are you living wisely in a way that enhances gospel witness instead of detracts from it? And third, are you listening graciously so that you can speak graciously into people's lives in a winsome way? Again, let me encourage you. You be winsome, and Jesus will winsome. Let's pray. Father, we confess there are uh, many ways that we fall short. There are many ways that we read the passion of St. Paul and we see, oh, I fall way short of this. Oh, Lord, I pray that through the ministry of your word and your Holy Spirit, that you would begin to help us, Lord, tap into um, our convictions and, 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 and break through our fears, God, um, to know that the reality of the simple fact that we can rest in Jesus Christ, that he does the work by the power of his Holy Spirit to change hearts. And all we're called to do is be a faithful witness to it. And so help us, Lord. Help us to, to learn how to pray for this. Help us learn to, to live more wisely. Help us, Lord, to speak more graciously. God, and we trust that by your Spirit you will form us into people who are winsome in our humility and in our witness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Saints of God, receive the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Would you hear the dismissal from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Friends, go in peace.